Good morning. Uh, well, when I was in uh, sixth grade, my class did an activity where we were told uh, to write little notes uh, to all of, all of our classmates, uh, and that we would be delivering these notes. And the point of them was that they needed to, to have a compliment or something we admired uh, about our peers, but overall the goal was to send some kindness and something, send some, something to build one another up. And, and so we, after a few minutes of writing, everyone took some time writing these notes at our desks, and then a few chaotic moments of rushing around the room and delivering them to everybody. We all sat down, had a little stack of 30 or so of, of notes of encouragement. We all started flipping through them. And as I went through mine, I came upon one note that, that in particular gave me what I thought at the time would be the greatest compliment I was ever going to receive. Right? This note had just one sentence on it, and it said, you always have the best comebacks. Right? You always have the best comebacks. And I was like, yeah, I do. I was so excited. And there were a couple reasons I was captivated by this particular note. The first is that it was actually written by the girl that I had a crush on at the time. And she'd even signed it with like the little heart over the eye. And was like, this is, I can't, this is the best. But more importantly, I was not a sporty kid. I was not a popular kid. I was not a cool kid. I didn't have a lot that made me feel like I stood out or that, that, I, that I mattered much to anybody. And so being told that I was the best at anything felt great. And this note instantly, instantly became one of my greatest treasures and its message, uh, an identity-shaping truth. I loved the fact that I had been noticed for what I believed at the time was a mark of my creativity and my intelligence, my ability to, to verbally spar with other people was being noticed. And it made me feel like I was figuring out a way to fit into this world. I was learning that my words could be used to make me look great and others look bad, and that often the world was going to be okay with that. At only 12 years old, I was already figuring out that I could use my words in such a way to benefit me first, benefit me the most, and benefit me alone. And even better, doing so seemed to be, seemed to be worthy of, of praise and acceptance of the people around me. And before we dismiss this as just a funny little story of preteen immaturity, let's be honest about something, and that perceiving the purpose of our words as a tool that benefits ourselves no matter the cost, and in fact, even often very intentionally at the cost of the people around us, this is something that our culture affirms and encourages and, and calls us to do, isn't it? How many conversations do we begin with the goal of being perceived as the smartest, or is the most well-informed, the most passionate, the most victimized, or the most righteous? How often are we drawn in by messages and media that hold our attention through the tactics of, of tearing apart the value and the dignity and the worth of those people on the other side of the issues that we care about? How often are we guilty of prioritizing our own self-promotion and consumed by the need to speak in such a way that keeps us at the top while pushing everyone around us down, further and further down? Too often we believe that the purpose of our words is our own glory and our own gain. And this sort of self-righteous approach to how we engage with others, to what we share with other people, it always ends up teaching us that the end the end of, of our own glory justifies any means necessary to get there. So if our words hurt other people, if our words create enemies out of our neighbors, if they contribute to injustice, if they spread rumors, if they spread lies, well, that's all worth it as long as we get what we want in the end. The problem with this perspective 
is that all of Scripture tells us that God has an endlessly selfless and deeply good purpose for our words that has nothing to do with ourselves. See, God does not need us to use our words as weapons. God does not want us to use them as tools of self-glorification, and he absolutely is not pleased when we use our words to manipulate or belittle or abuse others. Instead, God very simply and straightforward, simply and straightforward has a, a tremendously powerful purpose for our words. And the Apostle Paul captures it in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, where he writes, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. But only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. This is a radically different purpose for the things we say and the way we say them than the world would have us believe, than the world tells us we should use our words, isn't it? According to scripture, the power of our speech isn't found in what it can accomplish for us and what it can do for ourselves. Our words are meant to be a blessing to others, a testimony of the new life we have in Jesus Christ and how we've been changed. If we are followers of Jesus, then our words must be good and build up others. If we're going to be followers of Jesus, our words must meet the needs of the moment, and they must give grace to those who hear them. And I want to dig a little deeper into each of these ideas, but before we go to those positive comments, before we see the purpose that Paul says our words should have, we need to see his warning at the beginning of verse 29. We need to take it seriously. Because he begins all this by saying, let no corrupting words come out of your mouth. No corrupting talk come out of your mouth. And that word corrupting is the translation of the Greek word sapros. And if something was rotten or decaying or putrid or vile, if it's unwholesome, then it is sapros. It is completely useless and only brings harm to those who encounter it. So if you have corrupting, sapros talk coming out of your mouth, if you speak in such a way that it, that it is considered vile and unwholesome and useless, it accomplishes nothing of value. Instead, it creates pain and damage and division in its wake. And if you are a follower of Jesus, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, you have to know that such, such sapro speech is going to completely discredit any attempt you make on letting your life be a testimony to what God has done. If the things you say tend to discourage the people around you, cause arguments, or tear people down, if the things you say spread slander or gossip, if they're full of bragging and bravado, if they breed bitterness, if they promote falsehoods, if they give you the reputation of having the best comebacks, then you shouldn't be proud. You shouldn't feel smart. You shouldn't feel like you're clever. Because according to what the, Paul, the Apostle Paul says here and what Jesus modeled with his own life, your approach to your words, our approach to your words as a 12th grader and even today, my approach to my words has a serious problem. It is corrupted. It is useless. It is full of sin. And it needs to be changed. It needs to be repented of immediately. The things we choose to say cannot be filled with vileness or hatred or false accusations. You need to think before you speak. 
You need to listen before you respond. And you need to check in with your heart before you open your mouth. Because we are told very clearly and plainly that to do otherwise is to stray into corruption, is to fill the world with vileness and hatred and horrible and wholesome things. So instead of, of having such fruitless talk, we ought to strive for what Paul, the Apostle Paul describes in the rest of verse 29, to use our words for good that build up others, to use our words in a way that meet the needs in the moment and, ca- and give grace to those who hear them. So let's look more closely at how Paul describes the true purpose of our words. So first, your words should be good and build others up. Be good and build others up. The thing we choose to say, the things we choose to say need to be fruitful and beneficial and full of truth, loaded with the opportunity, with the potential to bless people. We want to be people that are so shaped and so transformed by our faith in Jesus that the only speech that makes it from our heart to our mouths and into the world is that which has the potential to help rather than hurt the people around us. But the goodness of our words needs to be more than just kind of checking off, you know, saying, okay, I said some nice things. I can check that box off on my list of of biblical obedience today. Because the key to having good things to say, the key to having good things to to put out there in the world that build people up is that it has to actually be happening in your heart. It actually has to be, be honest and genuine. It has to be what you really want to bring to the table. Our words must be said with the desire to share truth and pass along blessing and guide people into a deeper relationship with God and into greater obedience to what he wants to see in our lives. Throughout his ministry on earth, Jesus encountered all sorts of people whose lives were full of questionable decisions, of just terrible theology, and of murky morals. And despite these flaws, he would speak to them in a way where he used good words, used his words in a way that served the purpose of helping them change their lives and grow closer to God. Jesus spoke tenderly to people that he knew were outcasts. He spoke compassionately to people that he knew for sure were sinners and truthfully to people that he knew were wrong, were dead wrong, even when doing so led him into danger. There's there's a story of a man named Zacchaeus who was a tax collector and being a tax collector back then was was bad news. People people hated tax collectors because they they always took more than they actually needed to collect. That's how they made money. And this man, Zacchaeus, he wanted to see Jesus, but Jesus was surrounded by a crowd. And so he climbs up to a tree and he's looking for Jesus. And Jesus looks up into the tree. And instead of saying, you terrible person, or you horrible tax collector, you awful sinner, Jesus says, hey, I want to come over to your house for dinner. And in the time it takes from Jesus to say this, this invitation into Zacchaeus' life to the, word, to, to the end of the story, Zacchaeus has completely changed. And the good words of Jesus have so soaked into his heart that he's ready to repent and change his life and give money back to people he's stolen from and give in a way that will bless the people around him. That's the power of using your words in a good way to build others up. He could have brought the hammer down on Zacchaeus, but instead he saw the opportunity to save a man rather than put him down. Even as you look at the lives of the disciples when they were walking with Jesus, he's pretty hard on his disciples from time to time. He, he lets them have it when they're not following and, and keeping up with them. But even in those moments, you can tell that the, the disciples understood those words for good because later on down the line, they dedicated their lives, even some of them to the point of martyrdom, to continuing to spread the truths that Jesus gave them. They saw the words that Jesus had that were good for them 
and built them up and allowed them to take part in the kingdom of God. And of course, we have to remember the words that Jesus chose to speak over the people that had mocked him and beaten him and nailed him to the cross. The Gospel of Luke chapter 23 tells us that when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. There they crucified Jesus and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus then said to them, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. If Jesus, unjustly beaten and bleeding and, and dying while nailed to a torture device, can let compassion and forgiveness and love flow from his heart, out of his heart, out of his mouth, over the people who had put him there, then I think we can all confess that we can do better. If, if that's our model, if Christ on the cross is our model, and he uses his words in a way to bless others, to try to secure their forgiveness, then I think we can all admit that we can do better with how we choose to use our words with the people in our lives. Christ's sacrifice and compassion are what we're called to imitate with all of our, or with the whole of our lives, including the words we choose to say. We need to learn to build others up, to choose the good words that build the people up around us. We should also be able to speak in a way that meets the needs of the moment. Our words are, are, are to be good for building others up as fits the occasion. We've got to master the art of discernment. We have to know when to encourage and when to guide, when to praise, and when to offer correction or rebuke. We have to choose our words wisely and carefully and consider all of the circumstances, which means that from time to time, we are going to have to be honest with people, just as we're honest with ourselves, about what is righteous and what is sinful and, and where they might be walking a good line and where they might be straying. We all will have to challenge people to check their motivations, to check their desires, to look at their lives in comparison to what God teaches us and say, are, are you living well or is there something you need to change? Is there something you need to correct? One of my favorite examples of this from the life and ministry of Jesus is found in John chapter 8. And in John chapter 8, there's the story of, of a crowd that brings a woman to Jesus. They throw, throw her down at his feet and they say, Jesus, this woman was caught in adultery. And the law of Moses tells us that what she's done, it's worthy of capital punishment. It's worthy of death. And so Jesus tells us, what should we do? What, what, what are we to do to this woman? And the story goes on that Jesus bends down and he writes something in the dirt and we, we don't know what he wrote. But by the time he, he stands up, he looks at the crowd and he says, okay, those of you who are sinless can be the first to pick up the stone and, and carry out the, the sentence of execution. And one by one, the people go away. And, and, and eventually Jesus is just left with this woman and it says that he stood up and he says to the woman, woman, where are they? Where are your accusers? Where have they gone? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. This is a brilliant mastery of the moment. Jesus diffuses an angry crowd using good words, using great theology, challenging their accusers to examine their own motives, to examine their own sin before they're so quick to judge others. And they leave humble and convicted. They leave with plenty to think about in their own lives as they go home. Then Jesus turns to this woman with even more good words. He gives her grace. He gives her forgiveness. He gives her mercy. But right at the end, he also meets her with conviction because he tells her before she goes, go and sin no more. Change your life. 
This is not cheap grace. She was not getting off easy. She has an assignment from the Holy Son of God, and she is told, perhaps even warned, yes, there is something in your life you must now go change. Jesus is honest and clear. He's full of conviction, and he meets the needs of the moment with the power of his words. And as a follower of Jesus, you have to commit to becoming a student of the moment like this and approach both encouragement and rebuke with wisdom, motivated not by your own desire to be right, but by the love you have for the people around you, just as you have been loved by God. We should be able to speak in a way that meets the needs of the moment. And finally, our words should give grace to those who hear them. Now, a simple working definition of grace, just kind of a simple idea of what it might mean, is that grace is an unmerited act of goodwill from one person to another. Right? Grace is an unmerited act of, of goodwill from one person to another. It's doing something nice, doing something kind, doing something good to someone else just because you want to. And that's a great definition of grace. That's a good way to think about it. But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have to take it a step further. Because we follow Christ, we know God, and we know that grace is not just about what it looks like between each other, but how we've learned about grace in the way that God has treated us. And the Apostle Paul actually does this. He offers a definition, a fuller, more rich definition earlier in the book of Ephesians, where he told the people that God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised, us, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith, and this is not by your own doing. It is a gift of God. This is our chief example of what grace means. This is how good the unmerited gifts of goodwill that we give to others should be every day. Our example is the gospel itself. We want to give grace through our words in imitation of the way we have received grace from God. We want to speak in such a way where it is obvious to everyone we encounter that our lives have been changed by an immeasurable grace, by something totally out of this world. Something has totally changed us forever, and it comes through in our words. It makes people feel and believe and know that we truly do love them. Our words should make it clear that we are for them, that we care about them the way that God has cared about us. Do your words give grace? Do your words give grace to the people in your life? Do they reflect to others all God has done for you and all you believe that God wants to do for them as well? For the past two weeks, as Pastor Steve has been talking about this, this subject of words and how we talk to others, how we use our speech, and in what way our words impact our lives, he's, he's given us this grid that we can use to evaluate our words, and he's encouraged us to pray and to listen and to treasure. And I want to once again use those same three practices as we move forward, thinking about how can we use our words for good to build others up, to meet the needs of the moment, and to give grace to those who hear. So the first question is, how will you pray about your words? How will you pray about your words this week? What conversations do you need to bring to the Lord before you go have them so that you can speak truthfully and gracefully? 
Perhaps you could pray for the opportunity to share encouragement with your family, your friends, or, or your coworkers, someone who needs you to step out and be that voice of, of encouragement and guidance in their life. Maybe you need to pray for discernment in how to apologize for words you have said that have hurt someone. Or maybe you need to pray for the courage to, to seek out an apology that you need so that you can be healed. We could all probably develop a practice of prayer that precedes one of the most dangerous places that we ever drop our words on social media. What if you prayed before every post? Or you prayed before you sat down to keep on scrolling through all those things that fill your mind every day? We are in a presidential election year. How powerful might it be if every single person in the Faith Manhattan community, in our church community, committed to time of prayer before they ever spoke about an issue or a candidate. How powerful, how might, how might we impact the world around us if we said we are going to pray before we ever talk about who we're voting for or what we believe passionately about, we are going to be sure that everything we bring to the table in that, in that arena is saturated with prayer before we open our mouths. I can pretty much guarantee that time you spend in prayer over your words and seeking God and how to use them, it will never go to waste. It is always going to bear good fruit if you submit your words through prayer. So I beg you, I implore you, give it a try. How will you listen in regards to your words? Because here's the truth. You can't use your words for good. You can't meet the needs of the moment. You can't spread grace through what you say if you're so consumed by what you're going to say that you fail to listen to other people, if you're not going to listen and learn and understand a person and understand what they're going through, what hurts them, what helps them, what brings them joy, what, what, they need, what they're convicted by, if you're not going to spend the time to listen, you will never be able to bless those around you. Here's a little assignment you can, you can do to, to try to learn what, what does it look like to maybe become a good listener? Who can, who can we model our listening practices after? If you go to the Gospel of John, In chapter 4, Gospel of John in chapter 4, there's a story of Jesus who meets a woman at the well. Some of you know this story well. She's a Samaritan woman. She goes to the well, and Jesus and her have a long conversation. It's actually one of the longest narrative conversations we have recorded in the Gospels. And this week, read that story from John chapter 4 a few times, and take note of, of how you can tell Jesus is listening to this woman. Does he assume things about her, or does he ask and then wait for her responses? Does he cut her off with corrections, or does he allow her to share her own ideas and only then respond with his own? Does the woman seem to be harassed by Jesus' words, or is she helped and healed and made whole by the good words that Jesus chooses to speak with grace in the right moment at the right time? Let Jesus be your teacher about how to become a good listener. And finally, what will you treasure about your words? Does it, ever, does it ever occur to you, does it ever blow your mind that we are actually invited to use words that spread the, the gospel message of Jesus Christ throughout the world? We get invited by God himself to, to deliver good, good news, as good as God loves you, God wants to save you, God's made a way for you to be whole with him again. 
I enjoy talking about all the stuff that happens in life just as much as anybody else. If you stop me in the lobby and ask me about my thoughts about the Ravens and Chiefs later, this, the, later today, I will overwhelm you with the amount of amateur analysis I can hit you with about how I think that game's going to go. And I love that stuff. I love talking about books. I love talking about movies. I love talking about the things that happen in this life. But those things are not treasures. Those things are not precious, not in the way that the gospel is a treasure and the gospel is precious. And we make a mistake, we make a very tragic mistake if we allow them to take the place in our daily lives where we're talking more about those things, sharing more about those things than we are about the story that God has given us to share with the world. Ask yourself, what sort of words do you treasure the most? And may God lead you to a place, lead all of us to a place where we can respond with true love and passion for the gospel message that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will never perish but have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Those are the words that are treasures. Those are the words that are rich to share with others. Those are the words that I hope you can pass along as a good gift to others in as many moments as possible with the hope of spreading God's immeasurable grace throughout all the world. Would you please pray with me? Father God, we confess that words trip us up. Words are hard. They're hard to get right, they're hard to use well, and they're easy to use in a way that, that is um, more about us and less about the people around us and less about you. And yet, Lord, we acknowledge that you invite us to be better with our words, to learn to disciple ourselves and disciple along with you into a place where we're using our words for good, where we can spread blessing, where we can meet the needs of the moment, where we can give grace to the people around us in our lives. And so, Father, challenge us with this. Challenge us with, with the words from John 4, from John 8, with the stories that show us how Jesus used his words, and let it be that we model our own usage. We model our own speech. We model what's in our hearts and comes out into our mouths based on our Savior, so that we can share the best words, the most treasured words with all the world. In Christ Jesus we pray. Amen.